Psalm 36, we've read, we've used in various parts of our service already. And um, it starts with, it starts with that horrible description of evil men and what they do and why. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The first four verses continue that same theme. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. That reveals something very important to us that many of us tend to get wrong. And so there's a, there's a helpful little saying that can clarify for us what happens with our sin, even though this is talking specifically about the ungodly and it's talking about the wicked, there's still something that's very revealing about ourselves in here as well. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. So, here's the saying. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. That does make you a sinner, right? I mean, but that's not, that's not the root cause. You didn't sin and all of a sudden become a sinner. You started out a sinner, and that's why you sin. And that's what we're seeing with the wicked here. This, it's deep within him. It speaks to him within his heart. And that's the way that mankind has been ever since the fall. Transgression speaks within our hearts. And as Christians... We've been given a great gift that we are able to overcome that evil in our hearts. And that's, that's a miracle. That's impressive. That's crazy. Because there are not three categories of people that the Psalms describe. They're not the wicked, like Hitler. The normal people are kind of good and kind of bad, and then the good people. There's only two kinds of people that we see described in the Psalms, the wicked and the righteous, those who are God's people and those who are not God's people. And so, to the ungodly, transgression speaks to him within his heart. To the righteous, of course, that must not be, right? That's got to be the contrast. And yet, don't we see in ourselves that wicked talks to us still? Don't we feel that draw still within us? Not from outside, but from inside. Our desires. So what in the world are we to make of that? Well, here... We are in Psalms, and, and if you read 
the Psalms, we see David talk about that problem elsewhere, right? His confessions of sin are amazing in the Psalms. In other places, he declares his, his righteousness and his innocence. And that's the way that it is with us. We call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves God's people, not because we're good, not because we started out different, but because he has accomplished a great work on our behalf by choosing us, just as he chose Abram and renamed him Abraham. So we have been chosen God's people, and then set apart, changed, renamed to Christians. That's what, we've, that's what we've had happen to us by him. And it's a glorious, glorious change. And yet, the Apostle Paul speaks in Romans of the contrast between what ought to be and what still is in our hearts. He says, I do the, thing I, the very thing I don't want to do. And so, the, this... This evil within us, there's still that remaining inner man that has yet to be fully put to death. And that is our struggle because we are not the ungodly. Now, this is important. It's a struggle because we are the righteous. To the ungodly, it is not a struggle. It simply speaks to him within his heart, and he's glad. Because there's no fear of God before his eyes. You see? You see the difference. The difference is huge. And the difference isn't that the righteous doesn't struggle. The difference is that the ungodly doesn't struggle. I think we get that flipped an awful lot of the time think that the change is going from struggling to not struggling, but in fact, it's going from not struggling to struggling. To become a follower of Christ, one must count the cost precisely because it is a struggle by the power of God provided through his Holy Spirit working in us. And so when you read this description of the evil in these first four verses, there's no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Now these verses, I will, if you read them in different translations, you might get very different um, translations, okay? Because the Hebrew is very hard here. Um, but I think this, I think, this is pretty good. And the gist of it is, and even in English, it can be hard um, necessarily to see exactly what David is going for here. But what's, what's clear is that it, verse 2 goes right along with verses 1 and 3. And think about flattering yourself as a wicked man. Think about flattering yourself about your iniquity and about hatred. 
One way or another, what's going on here is because he has no fear of God, he doesn't think there's going to be any discovery. He doesn't think that he could ever be found out in his wickedness. He flatters himself in thinking that he is strong. Now, there have been a great many uh, tremendous leaders in the world, in, down through history, right? So, um, if you have the ability to conquer nations, think of Alexander the Great or Nebuchadnezzar, right? These great, these great rulers, these great leaders, okay, um, what do you have to be scared of? Certainly not man, right? And yet what happened to Alexander the Great? He died. He's dead and gone and buried, right? What about Nebuchadnezzar? Even longer ago, gone, dead. So all the flattery that wicked men tell themselves about how nothing will ever happen to them. This is one of the glorious things when, uh, when God acts outside of men to demonstrate his power and his glory and his sovereignty, right? It's just this beautiful thing to see God's, God's power displayed in nature. And this is why even some great, mighty, powerful men who have no fear of other men, right, when faced with some parts of nature, they're scared. Because they realize they're not in control, right? They're not in control. And even if they are not scared, if they're foolish enough to think that they even have power over nature, and there have been such men, okay, often God works to show that they have much to fear. Much to fear. Have any of you ever watched a, uh, a, a lecture on YouTube. Watched a lecture on YouTube anyway, okay. And then, how long, you know, the lecture might be 30 minutes or 45 minutes, and then you spend another 35, 45 minutes or hours watching other crap on YouTube. Anybody? Just me? Okay, no, not just me. Okay, one time, I had that happen to me. It probably wasn't even watching a lecture first. It was just... I remember watching a video of instant karma. Have any of you ever seen an instant karma video on YouTube? Okay, I got some head nods out there. Now, karma is not real. Karma is not real. But you know what is real? 
God. God is real. And some of the things that you see happen in instant karma videos are beautiful displays of God giving people a reason, a reminder to fear him. The only one that, the only one that stands in my mind and the reason I brought this up in the first place is because I remember seeing somebody in traffic with a, with a dash cam video and there was this driver, and I've never seen anything like it. Driving on the shoulders, weaving in and out of this, almost causing accidents, flooring it. And at one point, they floored it, and all of a sudden, smoke started billowing out of their car. And they had broken their car, probably the head gasket, because of the way they were driving. And the person who was in the car with the video camera just started laughing and laughing because he, this, this other driver got what they deserved, right? Now, that guy had no fear. The other driver had no fear of God or of man, right? He flattered himself that he could do whatever he wanted in his car until God showed him Actually, you can't. Now, that was God showing him that. That was a mercy of God to teach him. Can, can, we, can we acknowledge that God is the one that's at work in these circumstances? Is it unholy to, to watch a fail video and think, oh, that was God at work? No, actually, we must remember God. That's precisely what the, what the wicked man never does, right? He flatters himself that it doesn't matter what he watches on YouTube. He flatters himself that it doesn't matter how he drives. He flatters himself concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Who cares if anybody hates it? I love it. I'm not worried who discovers it. Sometimes the instant karma videos show people flying past in the shoulder and then there's a cop sitting there. And all of a sudden they are reminded, oh yes, they're, actually the discovery of it matters, doesn't it? The discovery of our behavior. But he doesn't care. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Whatever wisdom there was, whatever goodness there was, it's faded, it's gone. Having been made in the image of God to glorify God in everything that he does, instead, he's flipped it on its head. He lies, he cheats. And he refuses to glorify God. In fact, he even lies in his bed and plans how he's going to do it. He intentionally puts himself on a path that is not good. And he does not despise evil. He does not hate what he has done. So all of these things show the wholeheartedness of man in his wickedness. 
Have any of you ever listened to Third Day? I grew up in the era where Third Day was playing, so okay. There's this song that I, I was reading this psalm, and all of a sudden I realized, I'm sure I've realized it before while reading this psalm, oh, that's where that song comes from. So Third Day has this song, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. You guys know this one? Some of you may may know it, may not even know that was, who did I say that was? Third day, I think that's third day. And um, verse 5 is quite the contrast, isn't it? Now, why do I bring up third day? Because you know what's not in that song? Any part of verses 1 through 4. It's just the sweetest song because it starts in verse 5. Your righteousness, something to the sky. It's just, it's beautiful. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Oh, yeah. It's missing all of that testimony about the wicked man. And it, it's remarkable how, I, I'm not trying to pick on third, it just happens to be that they're the one that I ran into recently. But if you read through the Psalms, you'll find that even the little, uh, the little kids' ditties that you learned and that you teach your kids, you'll, you'll be reading through a Psalm and be like, oh yeah, that's, that verse or that, those two verses have been yanked completely out of context and made into a beautiful little children's Psalm, Right? It happens all the time. And, and part of the reason it happens is because singing an entire psalm is hard. But this one's not really long. It's only 12 verses. A bigger reason that it happens is simply because there's parts we like and there's parts we don't like. And verses 1 through 4 are hard. But you know what? That song This psalm, if it started in verse 5, if we just had that third day song, okay, and it doesn't go through the rest of the whole psalm, it does three or four verses, I think, but if we only had that, if this this psalm started in in, in verse 5, it would lack the necessary component for what we need if we're going to understand and be helped by this psalm. Because the contrast between verses 1 through 4 and then verse 5 and following is so huge that it's hard for us to even fathom how the two come together. And and David doesn't do any work of trying to make them merge. He goes as deep as he can into talking about how bad the wicked are. And then he just starts talking about God. And to talk about God is to contrast 
dramatically with all wickedness, isn't it? Because he is holy. There is no wickedness in him. And so it's this glorious shock to hit verse 5. But it's only a shock because verses 1 through 4 are there. The third day song starts there and it's not a shock. It's just sweet. What, what do we see praised about God in verse 5? What does it tell us about? It tells us about the glorious loving kindness of God. And when we've faced, when we've come face to face with how evil evil is, we come face to face with the wickedness of wicked men and how they really don't care and they're really not scared. There's no fear of God before their eyes and what in the world are you supposed to do with people like that? When you've you've come face to face with that sort of wickedness, does it not make God's loving kindness that much more delightful for us? And when you, in verse 6, we find that his judgments are like the great deep, we realize that all of that wickedness is actually going to be judged. No matter how much they think that they have no reason to fear God or how it won't be discovered and how it's going to be, work out well for them, Right? In point of fact, the judgments of God are a great deep. And they're coming. And all of those deeds will be judged. And that's part of God's loving kindness to us. That's part of his loving kindness to us. That he has perfect judgments. And that they're not shallow judgments. That he sees through the lies. They're deep. He looks at men's hearts. And he knows what's in the heart of man. So loving kindness is where it starts. And loving kindness is what we see several places in this psalm. We see it there in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 10. We see God's righteousness discussed, His faithfulness. But loving kindness is, is the key word for this psalm, for us understanding who God is and why we are to praise Him. And so, Some of you have probably heard this before and and studied this word, loving kindness, maybe in a Bible study, maybe in some commentary you may have read something about this. But kids, you'll see this word, loving kindness, at least in this translation, all over the place talking about God. 
that, he, that his loving kindness is great. And this word is very hard for us to translate into English. And so when you see loving kindness, what people have done is they've taken two words and they've just smushed them together because one word wasn't good enough. Now we think loving kindness, we think of loving kindness as one word, right? Loving kindness. But now think about it again. Loving kindness. That's what we've got. We've got a word smush going on. And the reason is because the Hebrew word is full of meaning. It's, it's deep in its meaning. And so God's love doesn't quite cover what it's talking about. There's something much more to, uh, to this Hebrew word, hesed, okay? That's the Hebrew word. I want to read you a little, uh, a little description from Dale Ralph Davis about this word. He says, hesed, that is the delightful Hebrew word that can give translators fits. It's difficult to translate with only one word. Some are used to the ESV or RSV's steadfast love. Now, they don't smush those into one word. They just leave it two words. Steadfast love. Steadfast love. Not just love, but steadfast love. Okay. It's love, continues Dale Ralph Davis, but with an oomph. I've sometimes called it love with superglue on it. It's Yahweh's love that simply won't let go. I've translated it variously, even in this series of expositions. Here in Psalm 36, I've used unchanging love. That's hesed. That's the word David is so enamored with here in our psalm. Okay, so that's Dale Ralph Davis with a short little devotional on the word Hesed. And it's one of those things that you need to know and you need to pay attention to in your Bible, in your Bible translations. You need to know when you're seeing Hesed. And you need to, you need to begin to fill in meaning from, from hearing this. You can think unchanging love. Yeah, that's the love with superglue on it, right? And you, begin, you can begin to understand better the Hebrew word as you read about it in the Bible, okay? Because it's not just praised, but it's talked about. So we will learn, even from this psalm, a little bit more about what loving kindness or steadfast love or unchanging love, hesed, what it means. What does David say about it? First, he says it's huge. It's unmeasurable. Look at that. Verse 5. Extends to the heavens. This is big, but it doesn't extend to the heavens, does it? 
Somebody told me this week that they're planning on putting up North America's tallest skyscraper in Oklahoma City, of all places. It may be tall, taller than the Sears Tower, and, but will it extend to the heavens? God's loving kindness extends to the heavens. His faithfulness reaches to the skies. You can't measure it. It just goes on and on. What else does he say about God's loving kindness? How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So it shelters us. It's precious. It's precious and it shelters us. It's, it's God's loving kindness that is what has made us safe. How does that, how can loving kindness do that? How can loving kindness make us safe? It's pretty simple. If it weren't for the Lord's loving kindness to us, where would we be? We would have gone down into the pit, right? If it weren't for God having acted, where would we be? What would have happened to man when Adam and Eve sinned? If it wasn't for God's loving kindness. If it didn't reach to the heavens, that would have been the end. If it wasn't sheltering, that would have been the end. Right? And how many times in our own lives would it have been the end? If it wasn't for the fact that God has chosen to love us with an unchanging love. And so when we come to the New Testament and we read about the fact that our inner man still has yet to be fully put to death, though we've received a heart of flesh and had our heart of stone taken out, nevertheless, that inner man remains, right? And if we are faithless, what does it say? He remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself, it says. What does it mean he cannot deny himself? He is loving. He is love. He, his loving kindness is unchanging. And so he remains faithful even when we are not. That's his loving kindness to us. Super glue. It's not coming off. You couldn't ask for anything better. And so that's what shelters us from what we deserve. It's his loving kindness that shelters us from what we deserve.
What else do we see about his loving kindness? Verse 8. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. Who? Who's it talking about? The children of men who take refuge in the shadow of his wings. And so it's because of his loving kindness that what? That we can drink our fill of worship here today. That's what, it's, that's what it means to go to his house. The abundance of his house. Where are we? Peter, my son, thinks this is church. Anywhere where we've had a church service is church. So we were out sledding at the, at the park and he was talking about how he crashed into the church. It's not the building, is it? He, Peter sort of gets it. It doesn't matter. The people of God have gathered there. Wherever the people of God have gathered, that's church. That's God's house. Here we are. It's God's house, not the building. That's what Peter doesn't get. <laughs> but us. Who are we? God's people. What are we? God's house. We've gathered together to worship him in his sanctuary. And we can drink our fill of worship here. What a gift that is. Don't we need it? Isn't it a gift from him? Isn't it, isn't it because of his loving kindness that he hasn't left us alone? With him is the fountain of life. It says, in your light, verse 9, we see light. That's deep. You could spend the next week just thinking about those few words. In your light, we see light. What does that mean? In your light, we see light. It's talking about the fact that if it wasn't for God's light, no other light would illumine. We wouldn't see if it wasn't for God's light. God's light is the reason that light works. Remember in, the, in Colossians where it says that in Christ all things hold together? Think about that, and the physicists are trying to figure out what holds everything together, and they keep looking and looking and looking. They find quarks, and they try to, they try to figure out gravity, and it doesn't make sense. They still can't figure it out. What's holding everything together? Jesus Christ is. Why is light light? Because God is light. In 
his light, we see light. In his light, we see light. There's more to it than that. I don't have time to spend a whole sermon on that little phrase, but if it wasn't for him enlightening our hearts, we would be lost in darkness. We've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into his light. Why? Because of his loving kindness. You see, all of this is dependent on his loving kindness. That's not mentioned. Loving kindness isn't mentioned in this verse or, the, or in verse 8, right? But it's all flowing out of that loving kindness that he has. That's why there's light for us. What a beautiful gift. And not just light. You remember that Jesus, when he was teaching in parables, and they asked him, why do you teach in parables? He said, it's so that you won't understand. Everyone thinks today that good parables are so that you can understand, but Jesus said it was so that you wouldn't understand. It's light. His word, it's his word, it's a light unto our path, right? But only if you can understand it. And so it's only in his loving kindness that he illumines our way and that we're able to understand the parables and that they become light to us. That our eyes are open. Light and life. With you is the fountain of life. And so this is, this is the gift of God. Not just this earthly life. Not just the fact that he continues to give us moment by moment every breath that we take. Not just that we don't fly apart with the rest of the universe. But he's given us eternal life because of his loving kindness. And so how do we respond having seen the wickedness of the wicked and having seen the loving kindness of God? We respond with David with this prayer that he prays in verses 10 through 12. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Oh, continue your loving kindness. Verses 10 through 12 are a prayer that God would keep that loving kindness going. If we've seen the contrast of what he's done for us, versus what wicked men are, how can we respond with anything besides praising him and praying that he would continue? It's miraculous the way that he's loved his people. And look what happens to those wicked men that we saw at the start. 
Verse 12, there the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. Verses 1 through 4, there's plenty of psalms that do this, but not in this one. David does not go and say, oh, they're prospering. Oh, they're thriving. Oh, God, why don't you act? What's going to happen? He, he, he doesn't go into that. He just leaves, he just describes them. And how horrible they are. And then he just stops and t- begins talking about God. Talking about God's loving kindness. And then at the very end, all of a sudden, he just says, there they are. They've fallen. They're done. They can't get up. They've been thrust down. They've been thrown down. They cannot rise. And what is the prayer that we join with David in? May it not happen to me. May it not happen to me. Let not the foot of pride come upon me. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. It's hard to think about what the foot of pride coming upon me might mean. There's two ways that that we could understand that. One is all those wicked men that we read about in verses 1 through 4, they're so proud, right? They have no fear of God, and they could come and put their foot on my neck. May their proud foot not be on my neck. Save me, right? But there's another very different way of understanding it, right? Let not the foot of pride come upon me. There's something about the risk of growing proud ourselves in that verse. That we, be, that we not become proud. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Drive me away from what? You know, it's like, yeah, I don't want to be, I don't want to be beaten by the wicked. I don't want to be, have to, have to be fleeing the wicked. But driven away from what? Away from God's loving kindness. Right? Isn't that the whole thing? Just like the risk of us becoming proud, so the, so the risk of being driven away from God is in sight in this verse. Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Wicked men must not come between me and your loving kindness. Because if they come between me and your loving kindness, your loving kindness has failed. But more than that, it would mean that I have left you. And so the prayer to God is, save me. Don't let it happen to me like it happens to them. Because look where they end up. What is the prayer? Oh, continue 
your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. We have been given God's righteousness. Righteousness of the Lord is spoken of several times in this psalm as well. But he's praying now, we pray that your righteousness would continue to the upright in heart. Isn't that what we need when we realize that we do the things we don't want to do and we don't do the things we want to do? Let God's righteousness continue to me. Isn't that perfect? Don't we want to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ every day no matter what we've done? Don't we want it to continue to us? So what is the prayer? Having seen the wicked and having seen the loving kindness of God, what do we do? What do we say? We say, God, let your continuing love continue. Let your steadfast love be steadfast. Let your unchanging love never change. Or never change your unchanging love. Let your continuing love continue. Continue your loving kindness. What a prayer. It's so perfect. It's perfect because that's the one thing that is true of loving kindness. It's steadfast. It's unchanging. It continues. It never stops. And so, God, be mighty. How could he not? God, continue your steadfast, continuing love. It's going to happen, isn't it?